From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a new year, and we hope to set you up for financial success with a special about paying down debt, saving, and growing your money. A lot of people are investors, and people that you might not ordinarily think of as being investors. It's not just a coat and tie affair. Oh, and there's that other little thing, spending. Everybody's going to tell you what you should do with your money. And the first thing I tell the people is, I really don't care what you spend your money on, as long as you budget for it. Plus, credit scores can make for an uneven playing field. Although it may seem like credit scores are somewhat objective and neutral, they tend to favor consumers that come from more privileged backgrounds, from high-income households and from like predominantly white neighborhoods. are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A new year brings a new chance to manage your money better, whether it's paying down debt, setting a short-term savings goal, or planning for retirement. We've been asking financial experts from all walks of life for tips and insight into how things like credit scores work. Today, their advice compiled in a special. First up, can money buy happiness? Or more elegantly put, how big should your salary be to maximize well-being? Lauren Jenkins answers that question through Mini Money, his financial literacy startup for kids and adults. And Lauren, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your education startup is called Mini Money. I want to start, though, with your mom. When you were a kid, she turned your home in Longmont into <laughs> kind of like a company? We had a household economy, is what she called it. We had to go through job interviews first. Oh. So we asked my mom to go out to eat every single week, and she got fed up with it. And so she said, okay. So we came downstairs, and there was a job opening for son and for daughter on the refrigerator. And we had to apply for the positions. We had to fill out a resume. So we got paid a salary every single week. And then we had to pay for rent. We had to pay for utilities. We had to pay for laundry. And her big thing was that it was more expensive to go out to eat than it was to stay at home. I actually lost my money at one point, so I had to take out a loan from the bank. How did you lose your money? Uh, my little sister stole it, and she'll never admit to it, but she did, in <laughs> fact, <laughs> steal my finances. But my mom's claim to fame is that by the time we got to the end of the summer, she asked us, hey, do you guys want to go out to eat? We said, no, mom, that's way too expensive. And so from a very young age, we just understood what money was because we used it every day and it made sense to us. And that's what we try to give back to kids today. And so you learned how much more value there was in eating at home and like what the markup was in eating out. I wonder if you then started thinking about other aspects of your life through that filter. I mean... We got paid to do our chores, so uh -huh. we did our chores, and so I was like, okay, well, where am I going to spend my money? Do I want to play video games today? Do I want to watch TV today? But it started to get to the point where we would compare the two. It's like, do I have enough money to play video games today? No, let me just read a book, make a little bit of extra money. We can watch mm -hmm. a movie tonight, because that was a system that she had set up. You then studied economics in college, 
and worked in finance in London. Do you think that's because of your mom, by the way? What's cool to me was to look at economics after doing the household economy. So to see how the basic principle of economics was stuff that my mom had been teaching me since I was like seven, eight years old. Um, And so for me, I think I got into economics because I like the study of people and how people deal with money. And my opinions or my views on a majority of the people in the finance industry are that they're not out to help people. They're there to make a profit and they're there to make money. And I learned that very, very quickly. Okay, I feel like it's time for the big reveal. What is the ideal salary for our emotional well-being? So right now it's about $70,000. $70,000. Is that specific to place? In other words, do you account for Colorado in that? Yeah, so I use Denver as a whole. So $70,000-ish is where you're going to be able to take care of your basic human needs. Now, basic human needs is not just the fact that you can eat, sleep, and you have a roof over your head. It's do you have mental well-being? Are you emotionally well? So you start from zero to 70K, your happiness level is going to rise, 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 rise. You get to 70K and it's going to even out between about 70K and 120K. Okay. And then once you get to $120,000, your happiness level is actually going to start to decline. That's the kind of more money, more problems moment. Exactly. Uh-huh. Most, yeah, most times it comes with you don't have enough time to spend the money that you're making or you're not doing a position or a job that truly like fills that passion and that purpose. So after you get your basic needs met, the only way that you're going to start to add Happiness is through passion and purpose, feeling like what you're doing matters. Did you arrive at these numbers through personal experience or studying something bigger? There's actually, they've done a decent amount of research on money and happiness as a whole. Like a lot of the research that I've done is around the psychology of money. So when you look there, I mean, there have been plenty of studies to show that at certain income levels, people are more and less happy. Uh-huh. And so if you take those trends, I mean, it makes sense with, with the way that you see people work. Like a lot of super high earners aren't the happiest all the time. And a lot of people who are making the most feel very fulfilled. So I think it's a combination of research and then personal experience. We asked one of your students about this, middle schooler Isabel Jaramillo, who lives in Antonito in the San Luis Valley. You taught a course there and hosted a run club last summer, I guess combining physical and financial health. And we asked Isabel if it was surprising to hear that over about $120,000, it may not help your happiness to make more money. It kind of was. A lot of people assume that the more money you have, the more things you could buy and get for yourself. But he explained it to us where you could have all the money you want, but that you could be sick and not be able to do anything with it. Or you could be poor and have nothing, but still have happiness. I think that at an extent that is true because a lot of things you can't just buy for yourself or others and make everything better. Lauren, why tell a middle schooler or a high schooler what salary they should aim for? Because most kids don't have that conversation. And so you get out of school and the only thing most kids will think about is, well, I need to earn as much as I possibly can. I need to earn, I need to earn, I need to earn. But if nobody talks to you about your mental well-being or your happiness or your purpose or your passion, then you never know to look for it. And so, so many times people will go through bad jobs and then try to find their purpose, their happiness, and their passion. And that's not to say that kids shouldn't go try to make a lot of money. Uh It's just figuring out what works for you. So the earlier we can introduce it to them, maybe they don't have to go through the same struggles and the difficulties that we've had to go through looking for jobs and looking for happiness. But we've also gotten the messages so often that it's impolite to talk about money, 
do we need to change how we think about talking about money? A hundred percent. I mean, it's something that I struggle with. I work with people every day one-on-one with money, and I still struggle when I ask, how much do you make? But if we can't start to have these open conversations, then you're always going to feel like you're on an island or you're going to feel like you're crazy. The more isolated people feel with money, the more that they'll go into a hole, the more that they'll... Like, st- a, little, like, a, like a debt hole? Do you mean? Like a, a debt hole, whether it's either a debt hole, you could have too much credit, or honestly, you could potentially just start to make too much money that you don't know what to do with your hat. Like you have too much money to, to manage. And you could also have not a lot of money, but if you know that there's other people around you who are successful or you know that it's okay not to have that much money, then the way that you're going to approach it and the way that the conversation is going to go is going to look a whole lot different. And the first thing I tell the people is, I really don't care what you spend your money on as long as you budget for it. Everybody's financial goals are going to look different. Financial success for every single person is going to look so different. Finances are extremely personal and they're extremely emotional. But at the end of the day, money is a tool. It's not good or evil. Now, it definitely has a big impact on our emotions. But once people see money as a tool and them controlling it and not it controlling them, they say, "Okay, well, if I want to buy a house, then my money needs to work for me to go buy a house. Do you try to take out some of the emotion? I try to bring awareness to the emotion. If I've got somebody who always feels anxious when they think about money, what I'll tell them is you're not going to not feel anxious. But when you feel anxious, go check your budget. Go look at it. Go do another budget. And that's going to bring down the anxiety. Fascinating, because I think about how much of my behavior today is related to my childhood experiences, my relationship with my parents. And that's true for finances as well. And our relationship with money, these things are forged early. Yeah. So actually, at the age of five, kids will have a natural response to money. And it's not genetic. We call them, they're either going to be tightwads or spendthrifts. So they're going to feel pain when they spend money or they're going to feel pleasure when they spend money. And so we tell people that it's important to be aware of what your natural tendencies are. Because if you know that you're a spendthrift, then don't bring your credit card to the mall. I'm not saying don't go to the mall. I'm not saying don't shop. I'm just saying know how you naturally are based towards money. And then we can make a plan to fix it or to move forward. Yeah. It's so affirming, right? Because it's not telling someone they're wrong. It's giving them workarounds. To start talking to people about money who've never really had this conversation before, I understand you put their own money situation into a societal context, right? Explain this for us. I mean, if you want to look at the racial relations behind it, if you want to look at class, like there's so many different things that come into how people deal with money. Like we've got people at the Denver Housing Authority that have been there for five generations and they've never had access to more capital. Now, if you look at a 13-year-old kid and her mom's been in public housing, her grandma's been in public housing, her great-grandma's been in public housing. What does that kid start to think? Well, maybe this is just where I belong. Mm. So if you can't tell, if you can't show that kid that this has nothing to do with you, you were just born into this situation. Now, what are we going to do to get you out of it? There's so many ways and it's so easy for people to get off on the wrong foot with finances and also, there's no education around it. You get, if you're lucky, maybe two classes on money from the time you're, what, five to the time you graduate college if you go to school. How we expect people to be good with their money? Okay, maybe some more brass tacks. How do you advise people to save when they start making money? Mm, make goals that you care about. So the number one, so as human beings, we psychologically are built to spend money that we receive. We get it in and we want to spend however much we have available. Oh, that's, that's kind of our resting pulse is to want to spend money. Exactly. Interesting. So we, and it's, it's, it's just human behavior. 
So what we tell people is, A, save first. You'll hear that 10 ways from Sunday. Save first. As soon as you pay, save first, save first. But if people don't know what they're saving up for and why they're saving up for, they're not going to save their money. So I'll tell people, write down your goals. Put up a picture of it. Because when you see that picture and when you have a goal that you actually care about, not investing because somebody told you to invest, you want to buy a car so you could take your kid to school. Well, put that up on the wall and you say, you know what, instead of going to Starbucks, I'm going to save this money because I want to take care of my family. It becomes your true north. It becomes your true north. Yeah. Exactly. What age or what stage should someone get a credit card? So it's not if you should use a credit card, it's where. Okay. So we only use it on our needs, not our wants. So any fun spending, don't do on your credit card. You do out of cash. You do out of cash or you do out of like a, a completely separate account. Wait, are you hinting at the idea that you have a needs account and a want account? So yeah, I probably should have led with this. The easiest thing that I tell people is have a savings account, one or two savings accounts, a need account, and then a want account. Huh. So you want to make sure like at the end of the day, we should enjoy our money. The why work all the doggone, why work all the time if- You can say doggone on the radio, Lord, it's okay. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I was about to curse. <laughs> we, we always tell people, why do all of these things if you're not going to enjoy the fruits of your labor? Mm -hmm. And so it's just about making sure that you enjoy the fruits of your labor while you don't impact your future and you don't impact your needs for the day. So after you save- after you take care of your needs, we always, I call it the ball out account, ball out, put all that money on a separate card. If you want to go out to the casino, if you want to go to the bars, if you want, whatever you feel like doing with your money, as long as you've taken care of your future and your needs are met today, go wild. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Lauren Jenkins founded Mini Money. He also works with folks through the Denver Housing Authority. Coming up, give us some credit, will you? This is a financial literacy special for 2024 from Colorado Matters and CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, continuing with our primer on how to manage your money in 2024. So you've started saving, you want to get a line of credit, but research finds that how credit scores are calculated isn't fair to some consumers. This comes from economist Ng Le To from the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, which covers Denver. She also has this scoop on what you can do about it to get the credit you need. And she spoke with our producer, Rachel Estabrook. What was revealed to you in this research? What did it open your eyes to? Credit scoring systems do not actually create a level playing field. Although it may seem like credit score are somewhat objective and neutral, they tend to favor consumers that come from more privileged backgrounds, from high-income households and from like predominantly white neighborhoods. 
and also they tend to be better indicators of credit worthiness for people with higher credit scores than those with lower credit scores. So in a sense, credit score can kind of perpetuate disparities in credit access across communities. Hmm. Okay, so credit scores are supposed to help lenders decide who will be able to pay back loans. But one Mm -hmm. of your major findings is that credit scores do not always accurately predict who will be able to repay. Why not? What are the scores based on? A credit score is basically derived from the number of credit accounts a consumer has, like what their credit limit is, the amount they owe, their repayment history, and so on. And the most influential factor that goes into uh, the calculation of a credit score is a consumer's payment history. So whether you have a long track record of making payments on time would increase your credit score. And then the consumer's credit utilization rate. So this is kind of like the share of credit that you're using out of the total amount of credit you have available to you. So if you have a credit card, but you don't use it to the max, that's good for your credit score. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, the lower, you know, the amounts you have outstanding on your card relative to your credit limit, the better it is for your credit score. Like people who are in like the top credit score ranges are using like less than 5% of your credit limit typically. Wow. They use less than 5% of their credit limit. Okay. Yeah. So one thing that as consumers we can do to keep our credit utilization rate low is by paying off our balances frequently. So don't wait to the end of the month. Don't wait to the end of the billing cycle. You can make multiple payments throughout the month that, that's going to keep your uh, utilization rate lower. Hmm. So, okay. So the two credit scoring models are FICO and Vantage Score. Mm-hmm. And it really is based on your history with credit. So that sounds like it'd be really hard for someone who doesn't have a history with credit. And it's always seemed really wacky to me that credit scores don't take into account how much money you have in the bank, let's say, because wouldn't that help a lender figure out if you'd be able to pay a credit card bill? Yeah, a lot of consumers have never used credit before and they don't have a credit score. And clearly, if lenders are basing their decision on credit score, they are not going to be able to understand how credit worthy consumers who don't have a credit scores are. And um, a lot of times lenders do not want to lend to consumers with no credit score just because they don't know anything about their credit worthiness. And um, historically, the bank account balances and kind of the amount of money making stuff is not taken into account for credit scoring. Although there are newer models of credit score that are based more on like cash flow and transaction data rather than credit history. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that idea of how credit scoring could be improved to help people get access to credit. But first, you mentioned that the way credit scoring works now disproportionately punishes people from disadvantaged groups. What do you mean punishes? What's the consequence there? The way the credit scoring model works is that it basically rewards people who are able to obtain their first line of credit and especially if they are able to kind of like piggyback on the credit worthiness of somebody who has an established credit record or credit score. By piggybacking, it means like doing things such as like, you know, becoming an authorized card user on somebody else's credit card or, you know, having somebody co-sign a loan with you. Those are ways for somebody who don't have credit to you know get started 
with their first line of credit and it'll give them like a head start. So if you're added as authorized user to somebody's card, you get actually inherit the credit history of that account. You get that account added to your credit file. So consumers basically who come from less privileged backgrounds or like low-income households and you know, Black and Hispanic households, they tend not to have that kind of access to somebody else whom they can piggyback on. So if you get started on the right foot with credit, you can yeah. have a good interest rate, et cetera. If you don't, what happens when people try to get credit? Yeah, so there are some credit card lenders who are willing to lend to consumers without a score. But the kind of typical scenario where the you know consumers face some difficulty getting started, then there is like the kind of worst case scenario where some consumers actually get their credit history started because of negative events such as debt collection or mm. bankruptcies. So in that case, these consumers who start off with all these negative events, they're going to have a lower credit score from the get-go. And then research kind of have shown that there is really a persistency in credit score. So people who start off at a lower score tend to stay in the lower score bucket. I was struck by a statistic in your article that about a quarter of people who want credit say they couldn't get it or couldn't get as much as they wanted. A quarter. And you think about all the things credit allows us to do to move up in the world. That's a huge portion, right? Yeah, that is a big number these consumers may actually be credit worthy, but they, they just happen to have a low credit score that does not actually reflect their true credit worthiness. And the second thing is that these consumers tend to come from less privileged communities and households. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned getting off on the wrong foot with credit through debt collection or bankruptcy. I want to note that in Colorado, your medical debt in particular actually cannot be considered in your credit score. This is because of a new state law that took effect. So this is a recent change, which should theoretically raise some people's credit scores. Medical debt should be removed from credit reports automatically here in Colorado. You just mentioned the fact that credit scores, again, might not accurately reflect somebody's ability to repay. So Is anyone working on how the financial system could make credit scores more accurate predictors of someone's ability to pay back a loan and hopefully get rid of the way that right now they punish people from disadvantaged backgrounds? Yeah, there has been efforts, I think, both by the credit scoring industry and federal regulators as well in terms of trying to promote the use of alternative data in credit scoring. In particular, I think rent and utility payment data has been looked at. Currently, rent and utility data are not systematically reported to credit bureaus. So the only cases where landlords or utility companies report these payments are when consumers are like highly delinquent, they are not paying at all. So only negative bill payments or rent payments events are reported, whereas positive payment events are not reported. But we might think that, you know, whether a consumer is able to pay their bills and if they are paying their bills on time regularly, that should also say something about, you know, how likely they are going to be able to repay a loan. So encouraging the inclusion of this data in credit scoring would help consumers. It seems like there are so many options of other data, like paying your bills on time, that could be used to determine what kind of credit you're eligible for that, that are just not utilized right now. There is some hesitance to use this um, factors because regulation is not exactly clear about under what kind of circumstances or, you know, what needs to be done for this kind of data to be used. 
And there's always some consumer protection implications. Hopefully, we'll be seeing greater adoption of this kind of alternative data in credit scoring. Given everything you found out, let's finish with the nitty-gritty of what people can do to improve their credit scores. What methods would you suggest? I think making sure that you pay all your bills on time, because payment history, that is like the most influential factor in your credit score. And uh, if you're planning to apply for credit in the future, it's good to start applying for credit early. Like So consumers can actually start applying for a credit card at the age of 18, provided you have like an income, or you can get added to their parents' credit card. So by starting to use credit early, you, uh, you give yourself time to build a longer credit history, and that's going to be good for your credit score. I think the second thing that I think we mentioned earlier as well is to keep your credit utilization rate low, keeping the amount of your outstanding balance relative to your credit limit low. And I think there is also this kind of misunderstanding among some consumers that, oh, carrying a balance on your credit card is a good thing. But no, that's actually not good for your credit score. So don't carry a balance on your credit card unless you have to. Hmm. Pay it off multiple times a month. That's usually the, uh, the best way to go. And checking your credit reports to see if there are errors. You can request one copy of your record, report from the three major credit bureaus every year. And it is not uncommon for people's credit report to contain like inaccurate accounts or like debt collection or so on. So checking your credit report is a good thing to do. I think for people who are thinking about what else they can do to improve their credit score, there are credit building products out there that a consumer can apply for, products such as credit builder loans. Credit builder loans, okay. Yeah, so those are kind of, if a consumer applies for a $1,000 credit builder loan, the consumer actually pays upfront to the lender the $1,000 that the lender is supposed to lend to them. And Mm. then every month, the lender is going to disperse a part of the loan to the consumer and put it into the savings account. And every disbursement is actually going to be reported as a payment to the credit bureau. So by having a signing up for a credit builder loan, you are actually creating a, a record of like a loan that's being paid off every month. So that can help to improve credit score. But it sounds ultimately like the advice is be proactive, be intentional, yeah. maybe apply for credit or one of these credit builder loans before you actually need it so that you can intentionally keep a low balance, build up a credit score, and then when you actually need a big load of credit to buy something, to make a big purchase or something, you have this history in place. Yeah, definitely. Ying, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Well, thank you for having me here. Ying Lei To from the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, speaking with Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook. At the start of 2024, we're boosting your financial literacy. More to come. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When I say financial planning, you may think that's only for retirement, but it's definitely not. Saving a little money each month 
will be crucial if you get really sick or something breaks down. Well, two certified financial planners are here to give you a primer. Gisette Almimar is with Trailwise Financial Partners in Arvada. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And Elena Macy is with Bloom Wealth Advisors in Boulder. Hi, Elena. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. A lot of people may not think financial planning is for them, that they don't have enough money or don't foresee any big changes in their lives. Elena, who is financial planning for? Financial planning is for absolutely everyone. I believe anyone, any age, any financial background or financial status would benefit from financial planning and having a plan in place and a saving strategy in place in order to reach their goals and have more options in their future. Gisette, I wonder if you meet people who don't see themselves in savings and in planning and maybe what you tell them. Yeah, I mean, I have definitely met some people, some friends that think that they don't need financial planning, but having a financial plan will help you achieve your short-term and long-term goals. Goals Um, like what? Goals like... Saving for an emergency fund, you know, that will be a short-term goal, a goal to save for a down payment for a house or get out of debt. You know, that, those could be um, some of the goals that people could have. Those friends who've told you, that's not for me, well, how do you convince them otherwise? Well, with friends, it's a little bit hard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, like, have those conversations with. They don't want to open about money because, I don't know, they could be like, this is so private and I see you so often That is kind of hard, but there is also this misconception that financial planning is only for the wealthy Uh and you need to have all these accounts and have a business or something that you need to talk about. But it's as simple as just to create a budget that you can follow and then just see, okay, where, where do I stand? Like, can I save some money? Am I spending too much eating out or am I spending too much on shopping? That is financial planning. It is beginning to get a clearer picture of where your money is going. Yeah. Gisette, I want to focus specifically on Latinas for a moment. Um, Statistically, Latinas live longer than people in most other demographics, and they're a source of support for relatives. Yet they earn 57 cents on the dollar that non-Hispanic white men do. They're the most likely not to have a bank account. I wonder if you want to comment on what financial planning means for Latino communities, given your own experience moving here, I think, from Colombia. I am from Colombia, yes. I moved here about 10 years ago, just like going through that path. I mean, I have a lot of Colombian friends, Latino friends, Uh you know, and I think like that uh, mindset of not talking about money is very true for the Latino community. Like you just don't talk about it. And I think it's because a lot of Latino, the Latino community has that sense or responsibility of taking care of their family members. Mm. There's also those language barriers that makes it very difficult to have access to financial literacy. So that can make it hard. I wonder if your parents talk to you about finances? No. I feel like financial planning in Colombia, it's not a thing. You just work until you can't work anymore, really. They do have some pensions established in Colombia, Some have access to them, some don't, Um, Mm. kind of social security here. But yeah, we've never talked about saving for the future or saving for when you're old and you can't do it anymore. Our parents' retirement plan is us, like the kids. And then you need to find that balance between taking care of them, that responsibility, and then saving for your own financial future. Taking care of yourself, exactly. (laughs) 
Do you feel like you're breaking a cycle to some extent in the work you're doing? Yeah, I do. Uh Yes. Elena Macy, uh, what was your relationship with money as a kid? I love this question, and it's why I'm in this profession. I am not the norm as far as how my house was talking about money. We talked about money all the time growing up. When we would go grocery shopping, my mom would talk to me about how much everything would cost. And my box of cereal that I'd throw in the cart, she'd be say, hey, did you look at what the price tag was on that? Is there a cheaper option? Is there a different option? And we'd talk about the full grocery bill at the end of our trip and know, you know what it costs for our family to live that week on food. I'm really lucky that I had that exposure. And that's really one of the big reasons why I'm in this profession is because I think I was exposed to it really early. And I do think I have a natural ability to manage money and understand our relationships with money. Of course, you could have rebelled, right? And then just be a debt monster. Yes, I could have. Okay, so the first piece of advice we've heard is get a sense of your spending. Like really look at what the patterns are. What is the next best thing people can do to build wealth, no matter how old they are. Yeah, I would say set some goals. Um, You need to know what you're saving for. So it's very important, the emotions and behavioral aspect of financial planning for a financial plan to be successful. A lot of advisors or people that are in this industry don't understand that it's not just about the numbers or being logical about this is what you need to save. It's important to have those goals and keep you motivated by saying like, okay, yes, I reached my goal. And it keeps you accountable and motivated. I think it's so important to have goals into play because when you are making sacrifices to lower your spending, you know what those sacrifices are for. I wonder if you've run across, I don't know, helpful apps or tools when it comes to squirreling away money. Yeah, to start with the budgeting, there are different resources out there that are free. Uh, One of them is Mint. It's an application that you can download and use on your phone. You connect your cards, you connect your accounts, and you just have everything in one place. So it's easy to track where am I at. You don't have to build a spreadsheet yourself. You don't need to do that. (laughs) You can do it if you want to and you have a lot of time. You can do that too. And then there are a lot of financial calculators out there. You can just like Google that and then it will help you with those goals that you have set. It will help you. Okay, this is how much I need to save to get to this Uh over some period of time. Over a period of time, it will have the option to add in there some interest rates or rates, things like that. I would say don't leave all your money just in a savings account because you need to have that money growing outpace the inflation. That's where you get a little bit more complicated, where you need to start understanding how to invest, what are stocks, what are mutual funds, all those things. You can start with Vanguard, open an account there and use a Roth IRA. Uh So it is an individual retirement account that you can open at those places like Vanguard, Fidelity, that are free for you to start. You don't have to pay a financial advisor to okay. do that. Yeah, and those are some Yeah, and both Vanguard and, and Fidelity were the two examples that she uses. They do have really great resources on both websites. So I know Fidelity specifically has a whole insights tab that you can look at and read and, and educate yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And it really makes it easy to understand for someone who has never invested before. It can feel yeah. overwhelming, but I know those sites, they do have a lot of resources for you to go to. And they're free. 
Yes, they're free. Huh. Yeah. So why I love talking about a Roth IRA is because a Roth IRA does have some more flexibility. Yes, it is a retirement account. It is for the long term. But there is some flexibility as far as taking out money if, let's say, you need some for a down payment on your first home or for tuition. And then also with the Roth IRA, you can take out any of the contributions you put into it. Not the earnings until you're in retirement, but Ah, any of the contributions. contributions. So it's a good place when people are just starting to invest and they're scared to lock up all their money until retirement. Um, This is a good account that can be kind of like a backup account if you were to need to tap into it. But ideally, you look at it as a long-term account and investment. Gisette, you were mentioning Mint. Um, I have seen any number of apps, services that when you spend, allow you to round up a few cents and sock that money away. Have you seen those? Do you like those? Yeah, I have seen those. And and I think like it's a good start. You were talking about how to grow wealth and build wealth, you know? And I think like that has two components. The first one is knowing where you're at, how much can I save? You need to be consistent in order to be able to build wealth. There is also the need to invest strategically mm. in order for you to build wealth. And if you are seeking someone out, I just want to say that if folks are looking for a professional financial planner, the best thing is to look for a fiduciary. And that means the planner has put your, the client's financial interests above the planner's own. I am curious about another population, and I understand you'll be teaching, I think, a course specifically for LGBTQ folks, Elena. Yeah, uh, their their needs are different. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to just say it. Our needs are different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there is a big unique need. I mean, one of it is with the marriage equality in law now. It's not as complicated as it used to be, but we still see a lot of queer folks are choosing not to get married for whatever reasons they that is. And we need to make sure that they are protected from a legal standpoint if you're traveling out of the state. And then from a financial standpoint, too, you know, there's downsides to not being legally married. For example, Social Security. Your spouse, if you're legally married, might be able to get a portion of your Social Security. If you're not legally married, we have to do something different when it comes to retirement planning. And then the area that I work with a lot of queer families is with family planning Um, from surrogacy, fertility treatments, adoption. There's a lot of expenses that go around that and expenses that a heterosexual couple doesn't always have to deal with. I mean, sometimes they do, but it's a unique expense and it really takes a lot of planning. Yeah, that goes back to what we were hearing from Chisette, which is what are your goals? Thanks to both of you for being with us. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thank thank you you so much. This was a pleasure. Chisette Almamar and Elena Macy are certified financial planners and fiduciaries. Almamar with Trailwise in Arvada and Macy from Bloom Wealth Advisors in Boulder. We started talking about investing there, and we'll give you much more advice about how to get into investing coming up. This is a Colorado Money Matters special from CPR News. It may be called the Canada lynx, but the wild feline with black tips on its tufted ears and tail has been recorded in Colorado since the 19th century. If you encounter one, purring and yowling like a loud house cat, it may be dashing through the snow after its favorite meal, the snowshoe hare. In fact, as the population of hares rises and falls in 10-year cycles, so does the lynx. About a century ago, the lynx was not an unusual sight in Colorado. Then its numbers decreased sharply. The state's last known specimen was killed near Vail in 1973. 
Biologists decided reintroduction was the only way to bring it back to Colorado in the remote San Juan Mountains. And though restoration has had some success, you might never see a Canada lynx in the wild. Even experienced hunters rarely encounter this secretive, nocturnal, and beautiful cat. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with the support of Coble & Company. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new year presents a new opportunity to grow your money. The final voice in our personal finance special belongs to Sean Spruce. He's a consultant with the First Nations Development Institute in Longmont. Spruce teaches financial literacy classes at the Denver Indian Center, among many other places. Sean, nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you too, Ryan. How'd you get interested in investing? I came out of school in the early 1990s, and like a lot of people, I had some student loan debt, I had some credit card debt, and it was right around the time when the internet was really taking off, and there were just a lot of opportunities to learn and self-educate. And I remember I had a job, I had an internship with the city of Albuquerque in the mayor's office, and, and there was a guy there at the time who ran the the economic development department. And I asked him a little bit about investing. He said, you know what, if you, if you start taking 10%, of every paycheck you earn here and every paycheck you're going to go on to earn throughout your career. Hmm. And you put that in good sound investments, you're going to be fine. You're never going to have to worry about money. And, and it just, it, it resonated with me. And from there, I just took off and started learning and reading and, and investing. I think you learn the most just from investing your own money because that's, that's how you really pay attention to what's going on. And from there it grew. And then um, I, I've been doing, I've been an, an investor ever since and, and also an investor educator. Why don't we maybe lay out some more first steps for people who are ready to dive into investing? We saw a huge increase in new investors during the pandemic when people were at home and they had extra money. Um, a lot of people are investors and people that you might not ordinarily think of as being investors. It's not just a coat and tie affair. It's not something that just professional people do. Many, many people are really passionate about investing. And I always tell people some of the steps you want to maintain and, and take care of as you begin your investing journey are to one, pay off that consumer debt. If you have it, pay down those credit cards, um, make sure you've got good insurance, right? You, you need to make sure you've got your, your risks covered because hmm. nothing can, can kill an investment nest egg faster than some sort of a, of a risk, a health risk or some sort of a car accident or something like that can really set you back. And then just get to that point where you're living comfortably. You're able to pay all of your bills every month and cover everything that comes up and you've got enough income. You've got positive cash flow, right? Cause you don't want to be in a situation where you're just barely making it and and six months later, oh, geez, I need to sell those stocks because I've got to pay rent this month. So you need that cushion. You need to get to that point where you can just comfortably predict that you're, you're going to have good, steady cash flow from month to month. Do you stick with the 10% idea that you try to think about 10% of the money you bring in as being good to invest? Well, I always encourage people, I mean, to invest as much as you can, you can afford to invest, right? 10%, I think is a good guideline. I think it's a good place to start, but obviously the more, the better. If you can afford to, to invest 20% or 25% or 30%, whatever that number is for you, I think you should focus on that. I think 10% is a good benchmark to start with. Okay. What I really learned when I served on my own tribal investment committee at the Pueblo of Laguna was that investing money, whether it's an individual a person just starting out who maybe has a few thousand dollars, even a few hundred dollars, maybe in a 401k or a self-directed IRA, or maybe they've just opened a Robinhood account or something like that. Yeah. 
the steps are the same as an institution like a tribal government or or anyone or any other large institutional investor and and really there's just more zeros at the end of these numbers but those same basic elements of diversification and asset allocation they apply regardless of what type of level you're at as an investor okay i think it's really important to have heard you say that even if you have a few hundred dollars you can think about investing i don't think about a few hundred dollars that way. I think like, oh, this isn't even something to begin on unless I've got, you know, a few thousand at least. Will you speak to that idea that a few hundred dollars can help build wealth? When I opened up my very first IRA, I think I had $200. I, 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 I contributed $200 and then I set myself up on a on monthly auto contribution of $50 a month. I think the hardest thing that I do is just in, encouraging people to understand that even though you might have to start small, it, it grows really quickly when you start investing. And the more you, you get into investing, you start realizing, geez, you know what? I, I can save a little bit extra money here. And, and I can, instead of buying a new pair of shoes or instead of going out to eat tonight, I, I actually can save that money and put it towards my investment. You just get so turned on to it. So let's say I'm, saving for a vacation I want to take in a year or two versus maybe I'm saving for a house that I'd like to see manifest in three to five years. Well, for that short-term goal, the vacation in a year or two, you're going to stay out of the stock market, right? Because that's just too short a time frame. Too much can happen. It can be too volatile. And right now with interest rates like they are, I mean, you know, there's some really good rates now on certificates of deposits and or CDs and, and money markets. So I would encourage somebody play it safe there. Go with something FDIC insured or maybe get a, get a money market through a mutual fund. Won't have the FDIC insurance, but still pretty rock solid in terms of safety. And you can get nice returns on that. You can get, you can get a good 5% return right now, annual return. And you put that away for a year or two and you're going to have a lot of money for that vacation. Now, if you're looking at that home purchase and then you're going out more than five years and yeah, if you look at five, 10 years and out, it's hard to beat equities, right? It's hard to beat stocks in terms of those uh, long range projections. And sure, stocks have good years and they have bad years, but overall, they're pretty solid. If you can afford to keep that money and let it sit for a, a pretty, at least five years, in most cases, you're going to be pretty well served by investing mostly in some type of a stock portfolio. And I always recommend the mutual funds just because it's just a lot easier, especially for a beginning investor. If you don't, you don't, most people are, unless you have the time and the expertise to really pick your own types of securities, you're better off just putting that money in a mutual fund and then learning and educating yourself as you go. And then maybe play around a little bit with picking your own stocks. But especially in the, in the early stages, just stick with a with a good, solid index fund or any type of balanced mutual fund that's got a good track record. It's been around a few years. You, know, you avoid these funds that have just kind of popped up recently. You know, Look at that inception date and make sure it's got a pretty good track record. And look at those fees. Make sure you're, you're paying those low fees on those funds because they can really range. Some, some mutual funds have very high fees compared yes. to others. And just sit back and for most people, don't look at it every day. You'll drive yourself crazy doing that. Just pay attention. Make sure you read those quarterly reports when they come out or if anything big happens in the markets, you know, go ahead and look at your own portfolio and see how it reacts. But for the most part, I think most people are, are, are kind of hands off when it comes to investments. And, and for folks like that, uh, I think a strategy like mutual funds is, is a good approach. Okay. So we've mentioned Stocks, mutual funds, we've mentioned CDs. Should we be talking about gold? Should we be talking about real estate? 
Well, gold is a fun one. I, people always ask me, what about gold? What about gold? It's so exciting. And there's something about that luscious yellow metal. I mean, since, <laughs> for the, since the beginning of time, it's been a hedge against inflation. And in times of uncertainty, people go to gold. And and more and more people are like, come on, gold, it's so antiquated. But yet we still see play in the gold market. There's still a lot of gold bugs out there. And I always encourage people, when you think of precious metals, investments like that, yeah, you can do okay with those, but but think of it more like a hobby as a collectible item and just mm. be very wary of the fact that it's it's going to be hard to predict from year year in and year out. But I wouldn't rule them out. I remember I bought some gold back in the 90s. I, can't remember, I bought gold at about $340 an ounce, I bought just a few ounces, not a lot, and I still have it. And even even adjusting for inflation, it's it's done okay, but... Compared to a stock portfolio going back 25 years, it certainly underperformed that. Okay, I want to ask about brand names in stocks. So, you know, there are companies that are in the news a lot that are familiar to us. If it's uh, Boeing or IBM or Exxon, when when you talk about, especially for folks who are new to stocks, do you encourage them to go with brands they know, or maybe something? the experts might recommend they've never heard of though. I do. Well, first of all, I don't encourage people in, in my workshops to, to speculate in any stocks until they've done a lot of research and, and are comfortable with the risk and really understand what they're buying, what stocks really are and what it means to be a stock holder or share owner in a publicly traded company. But I'm a big fan of that approach where you invest in companies that you're either already a customer of or you admire because I think it, it reflects a lot on hmm. what if, if you value the company and you think it's got a good product or a good service, then that's probably a pretty viable company going forward. It's, at least it's definitely a company to consider okay. and to think about. And I think you'll be, have a better understanding of what that company is and what it does if you're already a customer. So I really like that strategy. And of course, you always want to be careful about chasing after last year's winners. There are apps that basically have gamified investing. Do you like those? I'm leery of them. I, I, I'm, I'm happy that so many people are investing. Like I mentioned earlier, so many more people have started investing post-pandemic. And I, the technology, the fintech has a lot to do with that. And I, I'm, I'm a fan of any movement that's just encouraging people to be responsible investors. But that's the key word, right? Responsible mm -hmm. investing. And I worry that with the gamification on some of these apps, I think some people... Uh, there's a disconnect between is this real money or not, and it's very easy to get kind of caught up in in the hype and the enthusiasm. And and, and some of those uh, apps, I don't think, do a great job of really educating investors in the way that I think they could. I mean, they've got those tools available, but they don't always put them front and center. They're really geared around just the excitement of, of making money, ah. and especially with 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 the gains we've seen and and like the rush with cryptocurrency. They've done a really good job of just marketing to that type of investor, the FOMO crowd, right? The fear of missing out. Yeah, the do the I dopamine, the dopamine crowd. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's where they're. That's where a lot of that's going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of those people. I mean, there's some people that are really sharp that use those apps, and there's some young people that have just made have built some amazing portfolios for themselves and have done some really cool stuff as investors. But uh, any way you're going to slice it, there's there's a learning curve there. It takes time and effort. And uh, not everybody's willing to, to put that time and effort in. And if you're not willing to do that, acknowledge that to yourself. Well, thank you for the education. I really appreciate it, Sean. Absolutely, Ryan. My pleasure. 
Sean Spruce is a consultant with the First Nations Development Institute in Longmont. He also hosts a podcast called Native America Calling. After his segment first aired, we heard from a listener who runs an investment club for beginners through the group Better Investing. You can find the Rocky Mountain chapter at betterinvesting.org. I wish you prosperity in 2024. Thanks to producer Rachel Estabrook for this special. I'm Ryan Warner, here with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.